Today's episode is brought to you by the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. To learn more, visit usbank.com slash altitude go. Today's episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money around the world, which is huge for travelers. I've been a customer and a fan for 10 years. The Wise account helps you send, spend, and receive in different currencies fast, and they do it all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. This service has been so critical for me in my life as a traveler, as a nomad, as somebody living abroad, and you can join 16 million customers and learn how the Wise account can help you out on the road at wise.com slash travel. That's wise, W-I-S-E dot com slash travel, or download the app. This episode of Zero to Travel is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. It's important for us to understand the ins and outs of travel, I think, because we want to find out whether or not it's something that actually makes us happy or not. Does it benefit us? Also, it's important to find out whether or not by traveling, we're having a negative or positive influence on the environments that we do visit. And it also, thirdly, I think it raises questions about the relationships between those of us who are privileged enough to travel by choice and um, the people whose lands we are actually visiting. I mean, what kind of, re- what kind of relationship is there between hosts and travelers? That was today's guest, Dr. Andrew Stevenson, who is the author of the book, The Psychology of Travel. And you just heard a few of the big questions we'll explore today. Dr. Stevenson is a senior lecturer in psychology at Manchester Metropolitan University. And as a cultural psychologist, he is in the unique position to help us unravel some of the mysteries of travel from an academic and a psychological perspective. Some of the things we get into today, we get his advice on managing travel fears and anxieties, how to use travel as a tool for self-development. We explore some of the dilemmas of cultural integration. You know, How much should we maintain our own cultural heritage? when we're traveling or living abroad versus integrating into a new culture. Why is travel so memorable? How does travel change our perception of time? We get some perspectives on travel in the age of eco-anxiety. That's a term I never heard until I read this book. And we talk about some of the psychological factors behind different kinds of travel and so much more. Tons to unpack today and it's happening in this episode right now. So buckle up, strap in. Thanks for being here and welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. You're listening to the Zero to Travel podcast where we explore exciting travel-based work, lifestyle and business opportunities, helping you to achieve your wildest travel dreams. And now your host, world wanderer and travel junkie, Jason Moore. Hey there, it's Jason with ZeroToTravel.com. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thanks for hanging out, letting me bring a little travel into your ears today. This is the show to help you travel the world on your terms, to fill your life with as much travel as you desire, no matter what your situation or experience. I was really excited for this one. Dr. Andrew Stevenson is here. Again, the book, The Psychology of travel and it was a fascinating read especially for me given that i've been having conversations with travelers for over a decade here on the podcast and much longer than that just out in the world traveling and i thought wow 
what a unique opportunity to bring somebody who has applied their expertise, their academic background to travel. And one of the big questions here, why do we travel? And does travel make us happier? Just a couple of the many big topics we're working to unpack today. Hope you enjoy this conversation. Stick around on the back end if you'd like. I want to give a shout out to a listener in this community who had a memorable trip recently. You'll hear why. And want to leave you with a quote to wrap things up. So stick around for that. In the meantime, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Andrew Stevenson. And I will see you on the other side, my friend. Yeah, whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in Manchester, where okay. I live and work. And uh, but recently, just re- returned from Finland, actually. What were you doing over there? Uh, well, it was our honeymoon, funnily enough. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. And we went to Helsinki and um, a place called Matilda Dal, which is a national park, to do lots of um, open water swimming. Nice. The happiest country in the world. A couple of years so running say, now. Yeah, were yeah. you uh, were you looking at that from a anthropological perspective <laughs> as you were on well, your no, honeymoon? It was, uh, it, it, I was. It was very welcome because there was a good atmosphere and um, it, it's not very densely populated. I think that may have something to do with the happiness level. <laughs> yeah, where did you meet your your partner? Well, we've been together twenty seven years, and um, we used to play squash together. And uh, yeah, so we've um, we're both really lived here in manchester for two two or three decades okay i don't don't know if you've been here not to manchester no no it's uh gets a reputation as being a rainy city uh it's it's not as rainy as they say (laughs) (laughs) well that's great they sealed the deal after a couple decades huh yeah well a, a a colleague of mine at the um university where i work and the psychology department is a follower of your podcast, and she put me onto the, the podcast and listened to um, listened to a few episodes. I like the one with um, the man at seat sixty one. Thank um, you. It was great. He, I've been following him for a long time as a keen cyclist and uh, traveler on trying to avoid driving, you know, and flying. So um, yeah, so thanks to Leanne for you know, alerting me to your great podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for taking the time to be on it as a guest here. Should formally welcome you, Andrew Stevenson, author of The Psychology of Travel. Welcome to the Zero to Travel podcast, my friend. And yeah, this is a fascinating book for me, you know, having talked to travelers for over I know, about 10 years now on this podcast and having been nomadic myself for a decade and kind of looking at what you've created here with the book and digging into the the psychology behind some of the things that uh, we may experience or feel as travelers and getting that, I don't want to say academic perspective, because you the, the book's great. I mean, you, it's, it's very well explained, each principle, but you have psychological principles kind of backing up a lot of these big questions, which we're going to uh, basically kind of go through today. And before we do, I wanted to ask you a bit about your your specialty because on the back of the book it says you're a cultural psychologist with a particular 
interest in social and visual anthropology and cultural geography, which you've explored through ethnographic documentary films and soundscapes. So can you translate all of that for us, please? <laughs> I'll try. Well, you mentioned nomadism just now, and I'm a bit of a academic nomad, I suppose, because really I am um, trained in anthropology. And um, psychology is also the subject which I did my first degree in. So I, I'm probably situated somewhere between the two. Um, and um, I like to try and explore the idea of place and travel and how and the effect that it has on people and how people um, get attached to certain places. You can't escape being in a place. <laughs> We're always somewhere and that always has an effect on us, you know, and travel is integral to that. Uh, and funnily enough, psychology um, doesn't always have a lot to say about places because it focuses a lot more on people. And sometimes it talks about people as if they are separated from where they are. And uh, all of our listeners will know that, um, you know, the, the mood that they have at the moment may largely be down to how dark it is outside or how crowded they're surroundings are and all those sort of emplaced aspects of the environment that has an effect on us. So I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. Uh, and the other thing that you mentioned there is the idea of culture and culture and place are related. And I'm also interested in um, the way in which people from different cultures um, develop different lifestyles and habits and so on. And in the case of travel, funnily enough, we should remember that uh, Travel is often something which is quite exclusive to certain cultures, and there are lots of people in many cultures who don't have the opportunity to do uh, tourism. So um, it's easy to it's easy to forget that sometimes. Absolutely, I'm really glad that you you brought that up right here at the top. I think it's important to acknowledge that yes, psychogeography is that a bit of what you're describing. Uh, and I know in the book you said, "quote It's just just as people affect places, places affect us as we move through them." And it's that sort of dynamic. Yeah. Psychogeography is a, 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 a word which is made up of two words that have been sellotaped together, really. Uh, and um, it's got a couple of different meanings. But really, it's about uh, how we uh, understand and change the places around us as we live in them. Sometimes we think that places affect us. But of course, we've got to remember that we also leave our footprints and we leave our, um, you know, environmental footprints all over the world. And we have to think about it, the relationship between people and places as being um, reciprocal, you know, and that's, I suppose that in one way is what psychogeography is about. What's the link between how we live and the environment around us. Why is that disconnect there so often for human beings in terms of consideration of the of the place we're in impacting us as you mentioned kind of writing that off and being in our own bubble in some ways as as humans which is can happen quite often i feel like we can, you know maybe it's just the modern day or whatever we're not living off the land or however you want to describe it but for some reason i feel like we are not always aware of the fact that we are truly connected to everything and it's affecting mm -hmm. us at the same time. Why is yeah, that? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, this whole idea of connectedness has been, is very important about when we think about raising our consciousness about the effect we have on our environment. Bubbles is a very um, topical word, isn't it? Because we were, 
are sort of invited to live in bubbles when we were in the pandemic recently, and we were seen as a good a good thing, you know, to be able to, um, in a way, separate ourselves from our neighbours and those people around us. But outside of the pandemic scenario, we often travel in various types of bubbles, don't we? Like our vehicles, we can see the world as we, as it flies past our windscreens, but we don't often always fully immerse ourselves with the senses in all the places that we go through. And so it's quite, I think that's one of the reasons why we sometimes feel a bit disconnected. Um, and also, if you think about the, I'm just thinking about the concept of like the, the package holiday, for example, which is one way of traveling. Um, that's kind of a bubble in itself because we, we sometimes pay companies to shield us from aspects of the cultures that we visit that we don't want to immerse ourselves in. So that, sometimes that's a privilege, and, uh, but also just um, reduce the amount of connectedness. But there are lots of different ways of traveling, and not all of them are uh, so separated as that one. Just one example. Yeah, you're right. I mean, this is something I was talking about yesterday uh, during a conversation, the because uh, I talked to somebody who had done these really epic trips, you know, tens of thousands of miles. They did one on a on twenty five thousand k on a on a bike, and then over three years, and then ten thousand on a sailboat, and then they did the, a mo- like a huge motorcycle journey from Spain to Cape Town, and all of these modes of transportation change change the bubble or maybe break the bubble in some ways. If you think about biking, you know, you're really engaged. I mean, you can only go through a village so quickly on a bike. I mean, that is such a good point. And cyclists, bikes are a great example of this. I mean, I've always been a keen um, cyclist. And uh, one of my favorite trips, um, this is way before I started studying the psychology of travel, really. But one of my favorite trips was a, a bike ride across Malaysia. Um, and when I started in Kuala Lumpur and, and went up to Georgetown, it took me about five weeks. Um, but the thing that it, that this was in 1999, I think, and um, what kept coming back to me throughout that journey was the fact that uh, I, I was obliged to engage with not only the destinations, um, the famous bits of Malaysia, if you like, to the outsider, but I also had to engage with every stretch of road in between. And it kind of um, meant that I was much more engaged, I think, in the uh, totality of the uh, journey as much as the destinations and you know that's one way of traveling and I, I was comfortable with that um, but I guess it also it's a bit of um, you expend a lot of energy doing that kind of traveling and for some people they prefer instead to for example visit Britain and go to Edinburgh London and then go home uh, it depends what kind of travel you want to be whether you want to be a kind of um, explorer I suppose where you're looking at all the bits in between, places between places, as someone once said, um, or whether you want to focus on the the destinations that are most publicised, you know. So um, it's different. It's different um, uh, method, manner, methods of travel, isn't it? Really. Um, yeah, I mean, bring up a good a good question that perhaps people can consider on a future trip you know you mentioned the totality of the journey versus destination specific i think it's a really healthy way to look at a trip you know even if you are going to specific destinations as we do we plan an itinerary we have certain logistics we have to plan and everybody has their comfort level with 
Well, that's something they talk about in the book that we'll get into later. You know, the idea of like, you know, having things planned out versus spontaneity and things like that. But these are good things to consider when you're trip planning. And I think that's uh, part of the goal of the podcast here is is to kind of demystify the idea that uh, you can't do a certain mode of, of traveling. I've talked to a lot of people, bike touring, for example, that, you know, they had never pedaled a, you know, more than five miles in their life or whatever before they went on some big bike trip. And like, these are things that are accessible. You just have to choose them. Yeah. And you, you, you're inevitably going to find yourself in places where tourists are quite uh, rare, you know. And so the, the response and the relationship that you will have with the hosts in those particular locations is going to be slightly different uh, than if you were visiting uh, a place where tourism was commonplace. And, and so I'm thinking about, you know, on my bike in Malaysia, I just remember uh, going through sort of smaller villages where if you stop, get off your bike, uh, people will come to you and talk to you and maybe ask you questions and, you know, look at your bike, those types of things. But of course, if you were to cycle, for example, through London on your bicycle, um, which actually isn't as dangerous as it sounds because they've got quite good cycle lanes in London, <laughs> but you certainly won't attract any attention or curiosity. Do you know what I mean? So it's that different um, kind of response and relationship that you get, which is a, to some, in some ways a function of how common uh, um, tourism is in that, in that place. Uh, when I was in, going back to this uh, bike tour, so I, I wasn't planning to talk about this, but it seems to be quite a good example. I mean, uh, you also, I remember also meeting quite a few people who were doing backpacking on that same route, but I was also cycling in between those routes. And their experience was a, quite different, I think, because they tended to um, hop between certain destinations that had been uh, identified in, in the Lonely Planet Guide in, in the days when we used to use paper guidebooks, you know, the recommended ports of call along the journey were identified. And I think there was that kind of um, hopping between identified places. And I, I wasn't really able to do that because I, I couldn't avoid it. I know there's other people who were doing, you know, long distance walks, listeners who do have done long distance walks or long cycle trips will identify with this idea that you've got to be ready to visit everywhere, you know along the way yeah ready to visit everywhere i love that it's a call a call to yeah. arms right You're ready is, to visit everywhere yeah. i mean that's it you just described another bubble the backpacking bubble you could call it right but i mean i think like you know I've, I've done that i've been that backpacker and i think that you know you have choices along the way it's not black and white right like you can be aware of the bubble you're in and still make a conscious effort to get outside of it you know i mean this is the same with there's the expat bubble people call it right you can go to a place where a lot of expats live and you can hang out with only expats and you know be a part of that scene and and not take the time to foster those deeper connections with locals that live in the community or you can be in that same place and make the effort you know it's of course these bubbles are easy to be a part of if you're if you're familiar with that culture and you're ingrained in that, let's call it guidebook culture in, in that time, right? I mean, if you want to call it that. Yes, you're right. Yes. I mean, I've got a nice quote here I was going to read. Um, and and um, one of the distinctions that people often make is, and I think this is what you've been referring to here, is the difference between a traveler and a tourist. 
And uh, they often say that um, travellers are what we call ourselves and tourists are what other people call us, you know. And so because a lot of us like to think of ourselves <laughs> as travellers. <laughs> but there's a nice quote from... That's um, funny. Uh, yeah, a nice quote from Paul Bowles um, who wrote um, his novel The Shelter in Sky all about um, uh, a journey in North Africa by some expat, American expats. And he, he said that... Uh, the difference between a traveller and a tourist is that whereas the tourist generally hurries back home at the end of a few weeks or months, the traveller belongs no more to one place than to the next, moving slowly over periods of years from one part of the earth to another. And I think that's, um, you know, that, that's a nice way of putting it, really. It's a bit more of a commodity being a tourist, isn't it? Whereas the traveller is a bit more of an explorer, maybe. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Recently, I went out for tacos, and it wasn't even Friday. Yes, we have Taco Friday in Norway, not Taco Tuesday. Well, more importantly, I could have earned rewards for every scrumptious bite of those chorizo soft shells. Introducing the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Earn four times points when you go out for dining or order takeout and restaurant delivery, including tacos. Plus, you can earn two times points when you shop for or order your groceries, two times points when you need to fill up or charge up at gas stations and EV charging stations. You're even rewarded with two times points just for your favorite streaming services. Go to usbank.com slash altitude. Go! To learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Win big with the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash Altitude Go to apply. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. This episode of Zero to Travel is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. We're excited to partner with Nissan because our listeners know we love to celebrate the joy of exploring the world and finding the best off-the-beaten-path destinations to visit. And there's no better vehicle for that than the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder with seven drive modes. The Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys, and it even has the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds, so you can bring the fun with you. But Nissan also knows that it's not just about where you go. In a Pathfinder, the real fun comes from getting there, and that's something we love celebrating here on the Zero to Travel podcast. We believe that life is about finding that joy within the journey itself, and that's why. We're thrilled to partner with Nissan to celebrate adventurers everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode of Zero to Travel and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Now, back to the show. Well, we're going to get in some of the questions that you address in the book. I know, I mean, even on the back book, you say, you know, why do we travel? Are holidays good for our health? There are all these questions and you have them supported by psychological principles, which is fascinating. Before we get into it, I had a couple a couple more questions for you. Uh, first of all, I guess I would say, why is the having an understanding of the psychology of travel important? Like what can it do for travelers? <laughs> That's a good question. I've said to a friend of mine who uh, 
maybe read this book, but don't maybe don't read it actually while you're on holiday because you might start to analyse a little bit too much what you're actually doing while you're travelling. But uh, um, I think it's important for lots of reasons, really, because travel's um, such a common part of many people's lives. And by the way, we should point out that travel doesn't just mean tourism. There are lots of people who travel for other reasons, whether it's to do with uh, migration or um, study or work and so on. Okay, most of travel may be tourism, but there's lots of travel that isn't tourism. So um, it's important for us to understand the the ins and outs of travel, I think, because we want to find out whether or not it's something that actually makes us happy or not. Does it benefit us? Uh, Also, it's important to find out whether or not by traveling, we're having a negative or positive influence on the environments that we do visit. Um, and it also, thirdly, I think it raises questions about the relationships between those of us who are privileged enough to travel by choice and um, the people whose lands we are actually visiting. I mean, what kind of, re- what kind of relationship is there between hosts and travelers? Um, one one nice piece of research suggested that um, people tend to get on a lot more uh, positively with the hosts of the places they're visiting when they are of equal status or they see themselves as equal status. And you just talked about bubbles. And when we manage to step out of those travel bubbles and maybe socialize with people on an equal footing, maybe visiting people's houses in the places we're visiting, that often can have a good effect on reducing prejudice and developing understanding between cultures. Conversely, when we visit a place and the only people from those cultures who we ever meet are the people who are cleaning our hotel rooms or serving us drinks, that that doesn't really help us that much to understand them those cultures or reduce prejudice so it can you know travel does have an effect on how we um how we view people from different cultures and how we are viewed by different cultural groups so there's lots of reasons really uh, jason why um you know the psychology of travel is important and although not as i say i'm not suggesting that you analyze these things while you're actually uh, on holiday <laughs> yeah i just thought it was important to address because as we go into this it's 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 nice to know what what travelers have to gain from some of this knowledge personally. And, you know, one other thing is just kind of trying to assess, maybe this is a question that will help help assess this. This will be clear in a moment. But I'm wondering, you mentioned the impact of a place on, on a person. And, you know, for some reason, I think all travelers have experienced that feeling where you get to a place that you've never been. And for some reason, you just feel good there. It feels... It feels like it fits like a glove. You don't know why. Other places, maybe, you know, it takes a little time to get under the skin of it. Maybe you feel a bit more comfortable with it later. Other places, just like, you know, I don't need to go back there for whatever reason. And some places, you just feel that fit right pretty quickly, I should say. Maybe not right away. I'm just wondering about that that feeling. Is that rooted in psychology? Or, you know, the underlying thing I'm trying to get out here is, is Andrew, where you're at on the woo-woo scale. <laughs> yeah. mm. Well, it's funny, really, because you know, in the, the contemporary culture of uh, how many stars did it get? You know, this kind of idea that when you go to visit a place, the TripAdvisor attitude of "I'm going to give it five stars; it's a great place," or "I'm going to give it one star." There's this. Um, there's, there's often a, 
a quickness to judge a place, isn't there, and say, oh, yes, that's a good place, or that place isn't so good. And as you just said, it takes quite a long time for it to get under your skin, or for you to get under its skin, I suppose, and um, develop a, a feel for a place. And too often, I think, personally, that um, when you go to visit a place for a couple of hours, um, it, you've almost not got enough evidence to say what kind of place that is. And if you think about a phrase like the people in Norway are really nice. I mean, that, that, that phrase doesn't really work at all, does it? Because um, the, the, there are lots of different types of people in Norway as there are in every place. And it takes a long time to really get to the stage where you can actually make a, 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 an evaluation of a place. And, and psychologists often talk about something called um, mindfulness. You know, it's a therapeutic technique uh, often associated with breathing and yoga and that type of thing. But really, mindfulness in travel um, is about um, paying attention to your surroundings. So you might think, let's listen to what's going on here. Let's listen to people talk. Let's look at what's, let's, you know, observe what's going on. Let's, uh, let's engage with it physically let's go for a walk those types of things but without but with suspending judgment so in other words don't give it five stars yet don't give it four stars yet wait till you've been there for a while and give yourself time to make a, a judgment i think really that goes some way to help answering our question a little bit about um, understanding how we judge a place you know, and how we assess a place is maybe just try to be a bit more mindful because uh, you don't have to give it a mark yet you know, <laughs> or ever maybe, but it's a, you know, it seems no, yeah. like it seems yeah. like a natural thing to do is is to fall into the comparison trap, right? Yeah, and start comparing. It it to, I don't know. It, can you explain that from a psychology perspective, or you know, and how do we? Is there a practical exercise we can do in our minds to help us through not doing that, so we're not yeah doing the rankings? I think often there's a there's a um, a genuine altruism here where we, we often want to help people by recommending things to them. And so if someone says to you, I'm going to Norway for a few days, there's almost that, uh, and it's out of kindness in some ways, or maybe a sense of belonging or wanting to feel useful. Um, go to this place, but maybe don't go to that place. And so there is this um, element of um, comparison or, or an urge to recommend or to give advice. And, uh, you know, we, we've got to remember that different, pe different people like different things. And if someone tells me that a place, a particular town in Norway isn't very nice, that means that I'm probably going to visit it with lower expectations, obviously. Yeah. You've already um, been tainted. Yeah, exactly. And so in a way, uh, I um, maybe would advise people to... Um, Describe some of the things in a place if they're recommending them, but without saying uh, it's not very good. <laughs> don't give me the don't give me your evaluation. Just give me a description of what it's like, and then I can perhaps think about whether I like it or not. So I would try to suspend, try to be more mindful. It's not easy to do, mind, but to try to be more mindful in that we can maybe just suspend judgment, but still describe something. Mm. I don't know if that answers your question, but uh, yeah. uh, that's what made me think about when you asked the question. There's a fine line between planning and researching and then also letting all of that research influence, I suppose, your expectations 
your judgment, as we mentioned, perhaps being tainted because you read three blogs that said this place was not good and only one that said it was good. And listen, you can't totally set these things to the side. This is part of, you're going to come across information as you're traveling, as you're planning a trip, as yeah, you're traveling. Yeah, of course. You're, um, you're yeah. going to have conversations. People are going to share. I mean, there, there's that innate feeling as a human, you get excited about something, let's say uh, even just a movie or something, and you and you know somebody and you know them well and you think they would really enjoy it. And then you want to share your love of that for the, with them because you want them to have that experience that you have because you care about them and you think that they're going to resonate with it and oh you got to see this you know it's you're going to love it and, yes. and it's just like it's it feels good and that's what humans do we share right? we do i mean i mean travel is an in, often an, an innately social activity um there's a chapter in the book about the social psychology of travel and this maybe the one takeaway from researching that was that I realized it's almost impossible to travel alone. Um, you may think you're traveling alone, but all around you, other people are uh, demonstrating activities which you might conform to or not. So uh, you walk past a, a restaurant, uh, if it's empty, the mere absence of people is often going to deter you from going in there because you might think it's an unpopular place. Uh, even footprints uh, can lead you to follow a path or uh, people are influencing you when they're not even there sometimes. And so the, the crowds or the uh, other travelers often affect our decisions. Uh, that's, that's aside from the people we are actually traveling with sometimes, who, you know, but if, if you travel with your friends or partners and obviously they're going to, wherever you go is a compromise, isn't it? Between the things that you both want to do. Hopefully, you both want to do the same thing, but uh, quite often your activities are a compromise. So, you know, so travel is a very so sociable activity. I mean, obviously, I exclude here anyone who's uh, climbing a, a mountain for the first time alone, and, you know, but maybe they're doing that because no one else has done it. And that's a social activity in, in reverse, isn't it, in a way? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I like what you said, too, about the just describing a place. You know, I think I always thought, when I heard about a place from three different travelers, it's probably a place I should go. And when I think back to, you know, that, yes, they could say they don't know me and you're just sharing information, but what would get you excited about a place is the description of it. Right. And like what we you know is, Oh, that sounds like something. Oh, there's a hiking trail right by there. Oh no, you can go to this place. And Oh, that sounds like something I'd really enjoy. And you're just kind of assessing it for yourself. The book, well, let's talk about the social psychology of travel. And one of the things you address in the book is the uh, managing the travel fear. And I think this was an important thing I wanted to get some advice on because, you know, for all travelers of all levels, I think that I shouldn't say levels. We don't, you know what I mean? Experienced travelers yeah. versus maybe somebody on their first. Varieties, isn't it? Yeah. You can be afraid of a destination. You can be afraid of flying. You can be, you know, having certain fears that, oh, well, let's talk about bigger fears like oh, i'm gonna i'm gonna leave my job and travel for a year am i ever gonna get my career back again and i mean that's in a way tied into the type of travel we talk about here so you know fear anxiety phobias worries this is something that you address in the book and i just wanted to get your your take on some of this stuff we often say we live in an age of anxiety and lots of people worry about lots of different things uh, and uh, travel like anything else can produce fear but um Psychologists have talked about differences between um, fear, phobia, 
and anxiety. Um, usually when we talk about travel fear, it's, as you've just said, it's um, directed at a particular thing. It's got, a, it's got a focus. So it might be a fear of travel. Uh, it might be a fear of, it might be claustrophobia or something like that, or um, a fear of open spaces. Uh, those things are a little bit easier to identify and work around. So if you've got a fear of travel, uh, sorry, if you've got a fear of flying, you can still travel and you can find other ways of traveling. The, the more problematic, arguably, is the anxiety, travel anxiety. And uh, that's a little bit more difficult to explain because it often lacks a focal point. It's um, It may manifest itself in a fluttery feeling or a, a, a sort of physical feeling of fear when you a, a travel, a, a, um, a trip is... Um, within a few days or something like that. But it's very difficult to point your finger at what it is that's causing the, you the anxiety. And that's a little bit more difficult to to manage. Um, and um, a phobia, I think that's just a kind of a clinical category of, of a, a, a fear. Like fears, phobias have particular um, focus, foci, if that's a word. And so, for example, they might have a fear of um, uh, horses or Aeroplanes. So, yeah, there's lots of different um, types of negative feelings. But we should also remember, and it's also been pointed out by some researchers, that worry, the fourth of the words that you just mentioned there, uh, it may sound bad to be worried about something, but it's actually really useful to be worried because uh, flying to, for me, flying, for example, to the United States, lots of things can go wrong there. So it pays ahead of the trip to be a bit worried because if you're a bit worried you will take those precautions uh, which mean that you're not going to leave the house without your passport or you're going to make sure that you've packed sufficient uh, uh, belongings or that you've Tra a, travel insurance yes booked some pl booked uh, accommodation those types of things so um although some of these things like anxiety and um uh, fear are, are problematic worry is a jolly good idea uh, in general because it can <laughs> it leads us to make uh, slightly more um, positive plans really okay yeah so embrace the worry for worry yes. for worry free travel but the anxiety Absolutely. any tips on managing that from uh... well yeah i mean this goes back to things like i mean this is a harder question to to answer so I mean, off the top of my head uh, travel anxiety can, I suppose, be managed by indul indulging in slightly more conservative travel habits. If you are anxious, then that might be one of the reasons, justifiably, that you elect to travel in a, in a bit more of a bubble. So in other words, you might travel with someone who's feeling a bit more confident or has a bit more experience, or you might travel with an established group. If you're a cyclist, for example, you might go on an organised uh, you know, uh, organized itinerary. So I think this is one of the really positive things about the travel industry. It can help us with this anxiety by taking some of the organizational load off us. Um, and a solo trip into a forest uh, or across Malaysia, for that matter, is probably not for the anxious, you know. Um, so, yeah, th those are some of the... Um, practices that could probably help you. In fact, come to think of it, I think the travel industry is an excellent uh, form of therapy for anxiety, really. 
Well, we're going to talk about if travel makes us happier. That's kind of where I'm going next. But I, I want to stay on this for a minute because I think, is it always bad to have anxiety? I mean, don't we want to put ourselves out of our comfort zones? Isn't that where growth happens? And, you know, I've been in many situations where I've been very anxious and, and worried and all that stuff. And I've put myself in those situations purposely because, hey, I know, you know, when you go on a trip like this or whatever, you, you know, things are going to happen. And now I'm in that situation where something's happening and this is very uncomfortable and I'm scared. And, you know, isn't that kind of the point in many ways too? Like, I, I think that's, that's one of the draws of travel for a lot of people, at least a lot of the people in this listening audience is that, hey, we're going we're gonna to get out of our routines. We're going to get out of our everyday you know, humdrum thing, and we're going to put ourselves in situations that may not be comfortable. And you know, trying to avoid all anxiety is like the opposite of that. Mm. Yes, I think you're right. I think there is definitely such a thing as, uh, well, I, I've talked about positive worry already, but positive anxiety can be associated with um the learning process, can't it? I mean, if you go to school and you're learning a new skill, there's always that period where you think, oh, I don't know if I can do this. Uh, and you need, and uh, obviously you need to go through that uh, as part of the learning process. And I think traveling is also uh, a good analogy for that as well, because when you're traveling, inevitably, you're going to find yourself in places that are unfamiliar. And unfamiliarity is one of the things that provokes anxiety. The, the the question is, how do you respond to that? And those of us, those people who are sort of maybe thrill seekers or maybe uh, travel for adventure, those are the people who may relish that type of anxiety, and um, they may they may travel for reasons which are known as eudonomic travel, uh, which is kind of means self improvement, but uh, really. Um, so, in other words, you're going to travel not just for fun. Um, but or relaxation or, or familiarity, but because you want to test yourself a little bit and maybe learn something new. For example, you know, I was in. Um, uh, I do some research in Guatemala, and so quite often I visit uh, a town called Antigua. With some of your very popular with travelers, especially from the United States. Beautiful it's place. Lovely, yeah, it's a lovely town in um, a city. It's a city in um, in Guatemala. And it's very popular, as you probably know, because it's a hub of uh, Spanish-speaking schools, and lots of people from the states visit there to learn learn Spanish. And that's a, that's kind of kind of an example because Antigua seems to me to be full of people who are traveling, but also they're putting themselves outside their comfort zone because they are speaking uh, quite slow Spanish with a heavy American accent. And, and that's the kind of, um, and I think, you know, I've heard people talk about, um, you know, the, the, the preponderance of this strangely accented Spanish that's going on in Antigua. But, you know, if, if you do that for a few weeks or for a few months, then it might feel uncomfortable, but then you'll start to feel a bit more fluent and, and confident. And that's quite a, a nice example. I mean, Antigua is a bit of a bubble. Um, because there are lots of other people from the States trying to learn Spanish as well. But it's a bubble where lots of people are simultaneously feeling a bit uncomfortable and then you can come out of it and uh, you've learned something. So that's quite a good example of traveling for self-improvement. Uh, it's, uh, I guess it's not an extreme sport like, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> free, what's that 
climbing without ropes called. It's not like that, but it's um, it's putting yourself in a testing situation, I think. Yeah. Well, this is tying in with that question, how does travel make us happier? Does mm. it? And you mentioned the eudemonic. How do you pronounce Eudem- that? Eudenomic. Eudenomic yeah. well-being. Yeah. Uh, I, know I usually book- try to avoid pronouncing it, actually. I usually say <laughs> self-improvement. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. Okay, well, eudenomic well-being versus hedonistic well-being. Hedonistic being fun, enjoyment, you know, indulging, let's say. And eudenomic being purpose, fulfillment, and that sort of thing. And this sort of, these are the dual principles that you bring up to kind of support this idea that travel makes us happier. But I was wondering if you could dive a bit deeper in this. Not that anybody listening needs another reason to travel, but you know, if you can tell us from a psychological perspective why travel makes us happier, we're, we're going to take it, Andrew. We're going to take okay, it and run with that's it. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but obviously, there's lots of different ways to be uh, to find happiness. And I'm slightly annoyed, Jason, that you, you can already pronounce that word better than I can. After I've been, I've been <laughs> well, give them. me five minutes. I'll forget. So. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, um, I mean, hedonism and self-improvement, let's say, um, are two varieties of, of happiness. You know, hedonism is basically, you know, sun, sea, and fun, and, uh, you know, taking whatever substances, you know, get you high for a limited period. So hedonism is one of the main um, uh, motivations for travel, and lots of people um, travel for that reason. But the other type of um, motivation for travel, which has been identified, is this idea of self-improvement. And really, I think one thing we can learn about this, what I learned when I was writing about this, is that I realized that there aren't two different types of people. There aren't um, hedonists versus those people who are trying to improve themselves. Um, actually, we ourselves can um, hop or alternate between these frames of mind during the same holiday, maybe. So we've all, we all know what it's like to go out and go to a party and you might feel very hedonistic for three or four hours. And then the morning after, you might go to a museum uh, and learn about uh, an artist or, you know, try to learn a language, that type of thing. So it's not about different types of people, but it's maybe about different types of activities, and both of which can bring us uh, an amount of pleasure and fulfillment. Um, so that's one point. The other point that struck me about this when I was thinking about it and reading about it is that um, what we would really like from travel is not not just for, for it to make us happy while we are traveling, but for that happiness to have a bit of an, uh, a, a projection into the future. So we'd quite like to come home from our visit to uh, whatever place it was and still have a, a residual happiness. And it seems to be, from a lot of research that I read about, is that um, although uh, we can't say that self-improvement is better than hedonism, uh, it does seem that those people who uh, are on the side of self-improvement do, do tend to report longer-lasting feelings of um, um elevated well-being after they return from their travels so that's just a thought and uh, this sounds a bit pompous really doesn't it it's, it's, it's not that i'm saying all you've got to do is visit museums learn languages and learn how to cook mexican food while you're uh, traveling but those types of experiences are important for perhaps longer lasting well-being i mean you can carry on your mexican cooking when you get home can't you and continue learn your language so i think it's important really to maybe alternate between the two a little bit 
when you explore a, a new skill, like let's use the Mexican cooking example, you know, I mean, you can't help but you're exploring part of yourself too. You're, I wouldn't say indulging, but you're in embracing that curiosity and following through with it. And I feel like that's another important muscle to build in life, right? Like you get curious about something and instead of just remaining curious about it and wondering about it, diving in and getting your hands dirty and, and making the tortillas or whatever. Well, it's funny you said about that. Yeah, absolutely right. And tortillas are a really great example. Uh, and um, this is one of the, something that I've thought about a lot when I when I traveled and it's not so much something I've written so much about, but I think there is something to be written about this is that when you visit a place, um, you really, if you go somewhere as a tourist or a traveler, you kind of got a choice about what kind of activities you can do um, in, let's say in Guatemala or Mexico. Um, um, you can do things which are for the tourists. So you can visit a famous palace or go, go and, see a famous volcano um but also you can indulge in what i'd like to call everyday activities of that culture and uh, so learning how to make tortillas is a great example because in in england where i'm from um we don't really know anything about tortillas we in what? our supermarkets no. we have not really we we, we know <laughs> we, we've got um, wheat tortillas uh, in the supermarket but of course you go to mexico or guatemala the tortillas are made of corn and the process of making them is a pretty interesting, and they have these fascinating tortillerias where they make uh, tortillas, and you'll hear this sound as you walk past. Wonderful them. sounds! It's not, it's not applause. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's the making of the tortillas. Now, uh, what you just said there about getting your hands getting your hands immersed in a culture is, um, I think, part of this self improvement and part of this embracing of local culture is taking part in everyday activities of that culture um learning how to make tortillas rather than maybe visiting uh, a mexican restaurant ju just to eat them you know so those kinds of activities can really lead to longer lasting feelings of connectedness with the places that you're visiting uh, i've got another example of this actually that i thought about when, when i went to, i went on holiday to iceland a few years ago to Reykjavik, and um I don't know if you've been there, but one of the most popular tourist activities in Reykjavik is to go to the Blue Lagoon, which is a, a natural, um, um, you know, it's a, it's a heated outdoor Hot pool. springs. Yeah, exactly. That's the word I'm looking for. Hot, heated hot springs. It's really popular and it is very nice. Uh, but essentially it's something that is, not, is a, something for tourists really or visitors. But also in Iceland, in Reykjavik, simultaneously there are some really good um local swimming pools uh, which the locals go to now i'm a pretty keen swimmer and i was very conscious of the difference between these two activities both involved immersing yourself in water but in one of them you were doing something very mundane you were just uh, going for the daily swim up and down the lanes uh, there hadn't been any publicity about it. It was quite hard to find out about, but the only people there were pretty much Icelandic people. Uh, now, I, I, I really enjoyed that a lot, and uh, I, I felt um, a li little bit more connected while I was doing it, uh, whereas the I've got a kind of natural aversion to things that are just for tourists, and I felt a bit uncomfortable. And I couldn't really swim in the 
hot springs anyway because that's really not what it's for. It's for st- <laughs> it's for nobody's going to tolerate your lane swimming no, at no, the Blue Lagoon, not. Andrew. Forget that. <laughs> uh, it, people are drinking beer in there and stuff. So you know, it's just an example of, of um, you can be in the same place, but you know, the audience for activities are, are, is very different for different uh, different types of engagement. Into really, so yeah. We'll get back to the interview in just a moment. Would you love to have an incredible cup of coffee every day? I've tried it all. I've done the pour over. I've done the French press. But I tasted an AeroPress coffee many years ago. And immediately, I was sold. I had to get one. AeroPress is a patented three-in-one brew technology. This combines the flavor benefits of espresso, pour over, and French press all into one compact portable device built for travel or home. I love things you can use in both places. This device has over 55,000 five-star reviews in over 60 countries. AeroPress is the best-reviewed coffee press on the planet. I've owned one for so many years, I don't even remember how long it's been. And they are under 50 bucks, so they also make an exceptional gift. Thoughtful, proven, tasty, and travel-oriented. Who wouldn't love that? Now, you get 20% off just for being a listener of this show at aeropress.com slash zero to travel. That's aeropress, A-E-R-O-P-R-E-S-S dot com slash zero to travel. That will save you 20% on checkout. Thanks to Aeropress for supporting today's show. Hey, it's Jason here. Did you know you are invited to join the first ever zero to travel community trip? Yes, we're planning a trip together. We're headed to Morocco November 30th through December 9th. And you can get all the details at zerototravel.com slash trip. It's open for booking now. We have 13 spots left at the time of this recording. And you have until the end of March to book. So if you're interested in traveling with an amazing community, this community, a small group of people on an incredible journey through Morocco together with me, Sign up over there at zerototravel.com slash trip to get all the details. Thanks for listening and hope to see you there. Now, back to the show. On the subject of travel and self-improvement, before we get off this, I, I'm just going to use a specific example and I'm just curious on your thoughts. The Let's say the person that is taking a career break. I think this is a good example because there's a real intention behind it, right? And then perhaps that person's in a place where they're like, you know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. I might want to come back and do it. I might want to pivot to something else. I need some time to just kind of explore and I'm going to save up some money. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to travel for a year and I'm going to explore the world and and learn about myself. And I'm really going to lean into travel as a tool for self-improvement and kind of have that expectation that it's going to transform me in some way. And I guess that's the the part I'm curious about your thoughts on the expectation piece. And I think I think uh travel is a great way to do this because you're you're setting up a block of time and a container in which to explore yourself in this way and what you might want in the next phase of your life. And also you're giving yourself the physical distance to kind of break free of the perhaps the the cultural norms or the routines of every day and that does something to your brain as well which i know we can i'm sure that's going to come up here in this conversation we have a lot to get to man we're way yeah, yeah so you know in that instance when your your intention is to use tra- travel as a transformative tool is there in your opinion and psychologically speaking, I, I, I guess I should say, or academically speaking, is is that 
is that a healthy way to approach it? Like if you were, if you were looking at the spectrum of, you know, full intention of self-improvement versus I'm just going to be open-minded and see what happens and, and kind of like let this develop. And yeah, I have this intention, but I'm not going to like try to put too much pressure on it. I'm just wondering like what, you know, everybody's brain works differently, of course, but like what's sort of the healthiest way to kind of approach that? Yeah. Well, quite often that kind of um, break or moratorium, if you like, in, in your life um, where you might decide you want to go somewhere for six months, uh, people approach that in different ways. And um, I don't want to say that one way is better than another, but one way of doing it is to focus that moratorium, that break on gaining um, a connectedness with a particular location. Now, you've got to remember here that I am by training an anthropologist and what anthropologists tend to do, this is actually a bit different from psychologists, is that they tend to have what's called regional specialities. So in other words, they, they tend to latch on to one place and they get to know that a hell of a lot, right? So actually anthropologists aren't that well traveled, but they tend to go to one place a lot and get to know it a hell of a lot. So I do have that kind of mentality. So for me, if I was um looking for a break and a period of um self-improvement i would probably think about the best way to do it would be to really get to know a particular culture or um go and live in a particular place for long enough so that you could almost be not i wouldn't say go native but at least uh become really familiar with the language and norms and customs of that place and maybe work there as well because there's you do feel differently when you're working in a place than you do when you're visiting a place as a tourist because if you work in a place you, you you're forced you're almost forced to engage with the sort of um, the daily routines and the bureaucracy uh, and the uh, lifestyles of that and the norms of that particular culture and i think that's a really good way of um getting to know a place and yourself personally. Of course, the other way of doing it, I suppose, is to do um, one of these sort of whistle-stop world tours um, where you tend to find out a little bit about lots of different places. Um, personally, I, for, for environmental reasons as well as for reasons to do with immersion and um, uh, engagement with a particular place, I, I would favor the previous one you can find out an awful lot about yourself when you really start to learn about a particular culture but that answer that i've just given has a big asterisk next to it and it, it's basically that it's been given by an anthropologist because that's kind of the way we think a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no that's great that you mentioned that up front and i mean i've had both of those experiences and i've gotten a lot out of both of them and perhaps uh you know that was different you know, different seasons in life, right? The, the one I, there was no way I was not going to run from place to place and see as much as possible at, at one point. You know, that was just like the mode I was in. But maybe, you know, hearing you, it's, it's, if you had to recommend one or the other, maybe perhaps the happy medium is this concept of slow travel where you're perhaps spending just more extended time in various destinations. You get to see some places, but also stay long enough where you get. The feel. I mean, this kind of, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here in my notes, but this was a fascinating chapter for me as an expat living in Norway and, and the chapter on uh, dilemmas of assimilation, separation, integration, and marginalization. And this idea of push-pull, 
this was really interesting because I, I'm a Norwegian citizen now, and I'm just going to use my own personal example, but I think other people listening can relate to this idea where you're carrying around your culture and you have it all in your head, but you're not in it anymore, right? But you are a byproduct. You're a product of your culture. These questions you brought up in this chapter, you know, how much do I want to maintain my own cultural heritage when I meet new people? There's this this idea, right? Where you're, you know, you start to understand how how the locals operate. Like here in Norway, everybody's much maybe more calmer, speaking in a different, much different way than, you know, on the East Coast and in uh in the United States. And then the other question you brought up is how important is it for me to integrate into another culture? And then there was the uh, biculturalism idea that where you have a uh, you're fluent in two cultures, which I think that was describing me a, a bit more, and um, the effects of that on an individual. So there's all these. I'm throwing a lot out of you because I don't know where you want to start. But I mean, this is this is a thing that travelers experience, right? Like you're in a new place. I mean, I think we all do in some way. You start to kind of you become all right. Let's say for a conscious traveler. You're, you're trying to be respectful of a culture. So you start to adapt some of those behaviors. You're not going to uh, necessarily stand up and do the thing you would do in the middle of a bar in America in, in another place because they don't do that and it would be obnoxious and rude or whatever. And you know, so you start to adapt your, your behavior and you're basically integrating to that culture. And just all these questions around this, this push-pull and these dilemmas, I just would love your thoughts on, on this topic. Well, I'm glad you've uh, gone in this direction because um, this is perhaps the chapter which is most um, about traveling rather than tourism. And uh, th- this really addresses travel in the context of things like migration and uh, working abroad. And one, one area that's quite close to my heart, because I did my PhD about it, was is uh, the experience of international students. Um, they're quite an interesting group of people because obviously they tend to spend a year or maybe nine months in a, a different culture. Um, we have quite a lot of uh, international students here in Manchester and um, fascinated by their experiences. And um, they obviously have, they're central to this process you just described. And um, psychologists have come up with, uh, as ever, a few sort of technical terms, uh, which I try to put in everyday English. So we talk about acculturation and biculturalism and cosmopolitanism. And so those are the three words I've talked a bit about in the book. Um, but um, acculturation, really, it just means um, what happens to you when you move from one culture to another, either permanently or for a, a few months. This isn't relevant to tourism so much because. Uh, However much you immerse yourself in another place for a week or two weeks, I don't think acculturation is going to happen much. So if you're there for nine months, acculturation is really about, as you say, how much do you embrace or resist uh, a change in the norms, beliefs and values and lifestyles of the place that you are visiting? Um, Do you, for example, try to retain your own sort of cultural identity as much as you can um, now, one way to do that, I suppose, and I'm just, again, using the, the international student as an example, and we're coming back to bubbles again here, I'm afraid, Jason, so much about bubbles here, is one way to do it is to maybe live in a hall of residence with only with people from your own cultural group, uh, 
attend a course which ha has lots of people from your own uh, language speaking group in it. In other words, um, sometimes universities make it, in my view, a little bit too easy for people to um, spend a lot of time within their own group and it often doesn't they give them the incentive to explore so much so that's one way of doing it uh, and I guess the perhaps the more um, common way of acculturating is the halfway house version which is kind of integration where obviously you retain your love of I was going to say English food in my case if I was an international student but English food is not not a great example of anything but let's just say I still support my football team and watch the football games while I'm on abroad but I, I at the same time I do try to learn the new language I experiment with Mexican food in this particular example so you're doing that retaining your own identity but exploring experimenting with other norms and values so that's uh, that's the kind of uh, most popular and Research suggests the most healthy strategy in terms of um, having positive attitudes about the culture that you're in, if you see what I mean. So um, prejudice against different cultural groups tends to reduce if you at least partly integrate an experiment. No, you don't have to wholly do it, but if you partly do it. And I think that's a good strategy for a long game, like being in a, uh, a different country for nine months or 12 months. What do you think the benefits of that are long term for somebody that then comes home and lives well, in their home culture? Immense. In my view, immense. Because, you know, uh, in, in the international student example, uh, quite a few of our students, and I'm sure this is a, happens in different countries, uh, do a study abroad year. So they do three years of study in Manchester and then they may go to, um, you know, um, Malaysia or Australia for a year. And what they've got is not only have they got a degree in whatever it is that they're studying, psychology in the case of our students, but they've got uh, a pretty much lifelong knowledge of a different culture. Possibly they've learned rudimentary, a second, rudimentarily a second language. Um, they've got this connectedness with a different uh, culture and an understanding of the way that people, the fact that people just live differently in different places. And that might sound basic, but I'm pretty sure that um, if you never are lucky enough to have the opportunity to travel at all, it's quite possible to live through your whole life without really experiencing cultural diversity, apart from the people who you um, meet in your in your own community, you know, which is fine. But to see and breathe and feel the way uh, the smells are different and the temperatures and the daily habits are so different. And I think it's difficult to quantify that, but it's something that's so valuable for people. And um, when, for example, if you can have an everyday conversation in a bar about uh, you know, the, about the greenhouse effect or overcrowding. And you may have read about it, but unless you've really experienced it in a, in a city where the situation is so much more acute than the one you live in, uh, people often talk about the traffic in Manchester being bad. But I, every time I hear that phrase, I, I just think about uh, the people who have to get up at four o'clock in the morning in Guatemala City to set off in their cars to get to work for 
eight or nine o'clock just because they know that that uh, journey is going to take three or four hours and it's only a distance of about 20 miles you know just the traffic is is just off the scale and so i know that from experience and i could have read it in the newspaper uh but i think you know it's a long answer to your question but i think those types of everyday experiences give you uh, a knowledge of another culture which is hard to quantify you know and that's partly what integration and cosmopolitanism is about is is understanding that other people experience the world differently you know i could somebody can tell you that uh, but you can't really appreciate it unless you've seen it. You couldn't explain to someone how to drive, could you? You have to be in the car to, <laughs> to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, what you mentioned, I think, is, uh, yeah, there's something about experiencing that on a body, visceral exactly, level yeah. that, that's yeah. different than the sort of the concept of uh, of it. Of course, that, that goes with anything, right? When you experience it, you you take it in and it becomes a part of you and that was fascinating to me because i've had so many different moments over the years assimilating to or integrating into the culture here in norway and you know sometimes feeling like you know especially having children and wanting to impart my favorite parts of both of those cultures in into them and wanting to sometimes feeling like oh i gotta hold on to these parts of me that are American and you know I'm just I'm just gonna be this way and this is people are gonna have to deal with it and then the other day being like you know well uh, this is okay this is where I live and this is a part of you know who I am and, and sometimes feeling you know annoyed with that and sometimes feeling super cool with that and it's just uh, a constant uh, you 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 had the term push pull and that I really resonated with that in this chapter I'm, I'm glad you described that because listen to it as you describe it, and as I've tried to describe it, it, it presents the dilemma as an everyday dilemma. And the, this book, and it's a psychology book. I understand that, but I've tried to try to write it in a way where it's not it's not academic as such. It's got academic examples in it, but I'm trying to sort of convey a little bit about the experience of travel. Uh, and and listening to you talk really helps us to understand what the push pull of uh, acculturation is all about. Mm. time is another thing you talk about time perception i think we all know this travel can seem to mess with uh time perception in many ways i i mean i remember being in flows where it was just like everything was so felt so um i felt like i was just on this bliss ride and uh time was just i felt like i was just living so many lives in a short period of time um and it's it's time bending in some ways but there are some psychological reasons behind this so just the relationship between time perception and travel i was wondering if you could speak to that yeah yeah i mean well earlier on i mentioned um um i mentioned mindfulness and uh, talking about um trying to experience the world without judgment so much. And uh, mindfulness has got a companion, and the companion of mindfulness is known as flow. And uh, some other psychologists have talked about uh, getting into a, a state of flow. And we often use the phrase, go with the flow. And um, I don't know if you've, I mean, you must have had this. Uh, there must be an activity that all our listeners do where they just uh, 
time just seems to fly and they lose all track of time. This, and it's a great right feeling. now. Yes, it's this conversation. <laughs> um, for me, I like, I love cooking. And um, uh, when I'm cooking, I don't really think about what time it is or what I've got to do in a couple of hours, those types of things. Yeah, and, me and, too. And all our listeners will have, yeah, so all our listeners will have these things. Now, flow has been um, studied in relation to travel experience. And it's um, one, of, one of the ways in – this goes back to about happiness and travel as well. And one of the ways we often achieve happiness in life as in travel is to get into a state of flow. And uh, some great examples of research about people who go on uh, trips where they go to um, Latin American dance classes or salsa dancing or, or do deep sea diving um, – uh, those types of things. Now, for some people, those are those flow moments where uh, they've almost conquered their anxiety uh, and they're worrying about the future and they detach themselves from worries about what's what they did earlier, what they've got to do next. And so that's where time tends to be distorted in, in a really good way. Um, but other people have, have also s- sort of done a bit of research on this to suggest that some people – you may know in your own lives examples of people like this find it really difficult to get into those states and then others uh, find it really easy to get in, into those states. I'm a bit jealous of those people who can do this a lot. I can do it some of the time. Uh, but, you know, how many people out there have checked their emails while, while they're on holiday and they find it very difficult just to get into that flow state and detach themselves from their sort of everyday concerns about the past and the future so you know we are in this almost this um this it's not really a battle but it's a it's a challenge our challenging ourselves to try to lose ourselves a little bit in the moment and get into these states of flow and maybe um get a bit more eudonymic about things when we're when we're traveling so um we, we do edit our time a little bit as well by using um photographs on holiday and i always love the concept of travel photography because it's such a unreliable body of evidence about what you did when you were on holiday it's great because re- really what you do is you take photographs of all the good bits don't you uh but you don't take photographs of those moments where you're in, in a queue or you need to get you need to get a new passport or you've lost something and you're trying to Hold find on, we're it. arguing honey let me grab my camera really <laughs> yeah, quick <laughs> must take a picture of this put it up on instagram so one, one technique we use to again edit time a little bit and um uh, publicize our experiences in a very selective way is to use photography and and, and that's that's great isn't it so the, the way that we do that so yeah there are all these different techniques of distorting time and experience and long may it continue i think why is travel so memorable yeah well um again m- memory and that relates again to this idea of uh, co- commemorating our holidays isn't it and and uh um, looking at the positive aspects through photography. But historically, psychologists have studied uh, memory and travel by using um, concepts like nostalgia and homesickness. And uh, weirdly, uh, you know, two, two, 200 years ago, nostalgia was actually listed as a, um, a, as a psychopathology, you know, or, or, or a neurosis, you know, uh, it, whereas now we talk about it as just a, a sort of feeling of 
sadness for times gone by or places gone by. But um, memory and travel are connected by these concepts of nostalgia and homesickness. The difference between the two, incidentally, uh, is that um, nostalgia is quite sad, really, because it's a it's a memory for something that you'll never get back. Um, whereas homesickness, uh, it is a sadness, but you can rectify it by because that place is still there. So, um, you know, memor- travel is memorable, um, but we also have memories of the places we leave behind. And I, I found when I was doing my research with international students, uh, from different countries who came to Manchester. I did a study about the experience of arriving in a new place and uh, whether people, how people uh, constructed a sort of positive view of this new city they were in. How do you learn a new city? You know, it's quite difficult, really, and it can be quite bewildering. But people often use memories uh, of where they are from to help them cope with a new place. Um, so I worked with a, a few people from different countries, one, one person from Indonesia. Uh, now, Indonesia, I think I'm right in saying, I haven't been there, but it consists of about 7,000 islands, uh, an archipelago, and the, there's a hell of a lot of water in Indonesia, in other words. And so when, uh, when this student came to Manchester, she was feeling a bit homesick and missing the water, I suppose. And so to make herself feel better, um, she used her memory of running water and she went to look for some spots around Manchester where there was, where there were lakes uh, and uh, water features, if you like. And she went and did some sound recordings of them. And uh, those memories of home helped her feel a bit better about being in a, a new place. I loved that example because it meant that it showed me that we don't just use photography and the visual sense uh, to document our travel, but she she wanted to use sound. She wanted to make sound recordings. Um, and, you know, some people maybe who have sight impairment, for example, might use different sensors to engage with a place and remember where they're from. So it's quite interesting. Yeah, psychology is very um, um, focused on vision and observation, and we should pay a bit more attention to things like taste and smell and sound, I think. What ends up in our heads in some ways is just an amalgamation of uh, all of our senses mm. come together. Right. I mean, it has to be. Yeah, um, it is. And, and but you, you raised this a bit earlier on when you, when you said that, uh, you know, quite often we, we travel in a bubble and um, quite, it may be that sometimes we visit places and we don't ever see, we, we only ever see them, you know, through glass maybe. And maybe what we need to do is get out and, you know, uh, feel the temperature and, jump in the water and smell the food a little bit more and make it a bit more of a sensorial experience. So mm. it's important to do that, I think. Uh, I like in the in this chapter, you had the Steinbeck quote, you can't go home again because home has ceased to exist except in the mothballs of memory. Well, I know it's tragic, isn't it? So that's <laughs> his uh, Travels with Charlie, and uh, it's a nice uh, literary way of um, describing this feeling of... Uh, of nostalgia, but you know, on the positive side, um, for pe- for certain people who have suffered memory loss and experience uh, dementia, travel has actually been used as a way of improving memory. You know, like returning people to places that they grew up. Uh, can can you? We can use this idea of sort of uh, environmental cues to bring back memories, almost literally. 
And so uh, that's quite a good sort of example of therapeutic travel. Um, it's almost the opposite of nostalgia because you're actually revisiting a place you grew up in it, and that can bring forth lots of interesting stories uh, that you may have thought you'd forgotten. So uh, it can be a, a good thing in that sense as well. The last chapter in the book, I believe it is, yeah, where do we go from here? Travel in the age of eco-anxiety. I think it would be a big mistake not to discuss this, and i just wondering if you could give us a little bit more information on eco-anxiety, how you define that, and just some some thoughts, advice, perspectives mm. around this topic. Yeah, I mean, okay, eco-anxiety is a phrase that's quite new in psychology, but uh, it's actually, I, I, like to, I like to call it justifiable eco-anxiety. Many forms of anxiety are uh, often diagnosed as uh, being you know, a, a, an illness, but actually it's a really good idea to be anxious about uh, the future of the planet uh, because if we have a certain amount of anxiety about the future of the planet and the effect that travel is having on that, air travel and so forth, then in a way that's going to make uh, raise our consciousness a little bit and help us to modify the way that we experience the world through travel. And I think I think you recently did a, a, an interview with um, someone who visited all the countries in the world without flying. I, I think I, I had a look at that as, as a podcast. That's, and that, that's, that kind of outlook is becoming, for me, refreshingly more common. Um, and um, eco-anxiety is obviously, just to define it, it's a, it's a feeling of anxiety literally about our future and the future of the planet. Um, and I think we do have to try to address this by developing ways of traveling which are less damaging. And that's an obvious thing to say. But we've talked a lot today about how you can engage with the world a lot more on the ground, almost literally on the ground, uh, rather than just flying from one destination to another. And I think the positive experiences of travel really belong to every point along a destination. Uh, and I've got a friend who's just about to set off from England to Istanbul on his bicycle. And uh, he's actually not a very experienced cyclist. And uh, Ben, if you're listening, you know, good luck. But uh, I, I think you're going to really experience every part of this journey in a, in a much more um uh, uh, engaged way than you would be if you were just flying over there. So we, I think we have to think a bit about, about traveling in a, in a more um, responsible way. If you are going to fly across the planet, uh, maybe at least stay in that destination for a while and, you know, make it a, a proper immersive experience rather than flying to lots of places just for two-day visits. You know, don't want to sound preachy about it, but you've got to think about this type of thing. Um uh, but it's it's a challenge. It's it's a challenge in, in travel as it is in all sorts of uh, uh, interaction. You know, uh, I, I was in um, just just finally on that and and the way that the world is changing a little bit in terms of uh, travel and um, work and so forth. Uh, and I was I was in Central America recently um, doing doing some work that was there for a few weeks and. I, I met quite a few people who were from the States, but they were 
what I call digital nomads. And they were still working their nine to five, but they were traveling at the same time. And, and so this seems to be a new and quite interesting development that seems to be happening a lot more now where people are, um, instead of just traveling for vacationing, they're trying to mix travel, exploration, and work. And because we've got our laptops and we don't need our physical offices so much, I think this digital nomadism trend is is a definite option for some people in certain professions, of course, not others. But, uh, yeah, the, 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 the last chapter is all about the future of travel and it takes in um, eco-anxiety and digital nomadism and those types of things, which at the moment uh, we're not entirely sure about, but we're still learning about them, uh, really, Jason. Well, I had a good run as a digital nomad. It's a <laughs> nice... Nice time, and it's it's uh, we're very lucky at this day and age that we can take our work with us and and see more of the world. But I think eco anxiety is to me it's a it's a good anxiety because it's an opportunity, it's an awareness around something that's real, and it's an opportunity to make certain choices to alleviate that anxiety a bit, uh, knowing that you know you're doing what you can in in your own way to kind of make the right choices yeah i think it's uh, that's the way i'm seeing it anyway right now in this moment fascinating book here psychology of travel yeah anything else you want to share in terms of like where to find the book or your website or anything like that go for it well i I just want to thank everyone for for listening and thank thanks jason for such uh, a sort of thought-provoking interview and the, the book will be easy to find um although it is a very slim volume and it's perfectly portable uh, as I've said before, it might be a, a good thing to read, um, you know, in your everyday life as much as while you're sitting on a beach. But uh, I, I just hope, um, you know, we've tried to explain some of the ideas. Uh, it's not particularly aimed at the academic community. It's aimed at anybody who likes to travel and to think about travel. So I think that's all I want to say there, Jason. But thanks ever so much. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And it's nice to know an expert on this topic. So don't be surprised if we uh, if we have you back on, Andrew. That would be a pleasure. <laughs> that would be a pleasure. <laughs> Thank okay. you so very much and enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks again for your time. You too. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. There you have it. I want to thank Dr. Andrew Stevenson for stopping by the show. Again, the book, The Psychology of Travel. We'll link to it all in the show notes. Very cool to chat with him. And I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite quotes in just a moment. One of those play on words kind of quotes that I love. But first, I want to give a shout out to a listener in this community. I, not too far back, put out a challenge to travel with a loved one. And I got an email from Katrina who said, Hi, Jason. My name's Katrina, and I'm writing you from Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been listening to your podcast for years. Absolutely love it. And with every new episode, my travel bug grows and grows. Thank you, Katrina. She goes on to say, My mother and I just got back from a trip to Paris. So your mention about traveling with a loved one really resonated with me and not to wait to do it. As my mom is getting older, her health is becoming more varied. Nothing very serious, though. We had to take this trip at a much slower pace than I'm used to traveling. I learned that the more we travel together, the more of a caregiver role I step into, making sure she has my arm to hold on to when the walking or all those steps in and out of the metro becomes too much, finding a place for her to sit down when she starts to get dizzy. But even with all of that and other things, we had the best time together goes on to say i just 100 agree that we should be traveling with our loved ones while we can time waits for no one 
and we don't want to keep pushing off these special trips and you know said some other kind things but i just wanted to share uh, a shout out to her for making those memories with her mom and just another reminder i think it's worth reminding all of us that travel is a great way to make memories with loved ones as you know and if you haven't done it in a while something to think about okay We'll leave you with a quote in just a second. A quick reminder, jason at zerototravel.com is my email. would love to hear from you. I mean, I share these listener shout outs because I want to invite you to get in touch. If you haven't done so, just say hi. I have a voicemail box. You can easily leave a message on. I respond to all of those. And I also have a newsletter. If you haven't signed up, zerototravel.com slash newsletter, where you can get a free weekly newsletter giving you some, uh, some helpful links, some musings, and all that good stuff. So sign up over there for free. Okay. I'll leave you with this quote from Dr. Wayne Dyer, who said, if you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Nice play on words there. Okay, I'll leave you with that. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week. Peace and love to you and yours. Cheers. Thanks again. This podcast has been brought to you by ZeroToTravel.com. Ideas and advice to make your travel dreams a reality.